Hey, Chris. <laughs> hey, Jason. <laughs> Feels like we just did this. Yeah, yeah. But second time in person, so, you know. Yeah, it's it's been... The background noise is uh, rough, but it's rough. we'll be fine. We'll, we'll survive. Uh, today, once again, an hour later, we are joined by our next guest. <laughs> uh, Nate, do you mind introducing yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Nate Berkepeck. I am a performance consultant for Ruby on Rails applications. Awesome. Thanks for uh, taking an hour out of RailsConf to join us. Of course. So, kind of one of the, uh, the low-hanging fruit questions we always ask everyone, how they got their start in programming and subsequently Ruby. Yeah, so um, I actually got my start in programming because, uh, so I was graduating from college in 2000. Uh, and 11 and uh, I wanted to work in tech startups so I went to college in New York City and uh, I wanted to work at a tech startup it was super hot back then 2011 like you gotta remember Foursquare was like like you know taking off and Twitter was taking off and so it was a really hot industry and um, so I knew I wanted to work at a tech startup and I asked a faculty advisor I said well, what's the easiest way to work at a tech startup? And he said, you got to become technical. You got to be a programmer. Um, the, you know, the business jobs at a, at a tech startup are a lot harder to come by. So I was like, all right, sounds good. <laughs> and uh, taught myself how to program in like the last six months. Never had a computer science course at college. Um, and then uh, got a job as soon as I, as I graduated at a tech startup in New York and cool. sort of took it from there. So you actually started with Ruby? Oh yeah, yeah, because it was super hot back then, yeah, right? Yeah. Like in 20, 2011, was, I was like, that was what you were gonna learn. GitHub, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was like that or Node, and I tried Node and c it couldn't wrap my brain around it. And I started writing Ruby and was like, wow, this makes so much more sense. And uh, I also at that time found Wise Poignant Guide. Okay. And I was basically like, okay, if there's a community that can produce this, then that's the community I want to be a part of. Yeah. Even though Wise Pointing Guy was like way before that, right? I think yeah, and he had left, I think, by then. <laughs> yeah, but, he was long gone. But, but, like, it was just the fact that this was the thing that the community produced, like, yeah. that I want yeah, to be a I part of. Yeah, I felt the same way. It was and also, like, you know, I got to shout out to Michael Hartle for Rails Tutorial because I think that was also probably something that pushed me down that road was like, I had read a blog post of someone else who said, listen, I locked myself in a room for a week and I did this Rails tutorial thing and then I came out on the other side a Rails programmer and uh, so I, that was my plan too. Like I, I was an intern at the time at this uh, tech company, I guess I'll call it a startup um, and I basically just went off the radar for a week and didn't tell anyone <laughs> what I was doing and uh, taught myself how to program with Rails tutorial over the course of a week. <laughs> and then uh, once I came out the other side and, like, started writing programs, you know, like, to do some stuff at work. And people were like, when did you learn how to do this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's did funny. you know how to do this before? What were you going to do before programming? Um, I don't know. Like, I just went to, you know, I went to the business school at NYU, uh, Stern. And I just, like, I knew I wanted to be in entrepreneurship. I knew I wanted to work for myself. And I, I thought, oh, well, that's what you go to business school for. And it turns out you go to business school to get a job at a consulting uh, company or a bank. So, yeah. like, it took me about yeah. a year to figure that one out. And I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So, I, uh, it's a natural progression. So, I have to ask. So, you want to be an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. You go on Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah. I have to know. Yeah. I have to yeah. know. Yeah, that was 2008, I think. 
Uh, no, 2009. A couple um, of years for your programming's on your radar. Yeah, it, yes, very much. So it was like a, <laughs> uh, I had like a t-shirt company that I had started um, with like a sort of like socially responsible bent to it. And uh, I, I was like reading this entrepreneurship blog and they had this ad or like thing, a post that was like, major network seeks entrepreneurs for new reality television show program. Because Shark Tank had not aired at this point, right? This is the first season, so no one even knew what it was. You're like OG. So the ad, the ad didn't say what it was. It was you know what series it was. Um, And uh, so I, you know, sent in an email and was like, I'll never hear back from that again. I heard back, and then they sent me this massive application packet, and you know it's like 25 pages, and like you got to send in a video and. I remember dropping all that stuff into a FedEx Kinko's box at like 11 o'clock the day it was due and just thinking, well, I'll never hear back from that again. <laughs> <laughs> then I got a call from a producer and yeah, eventually I ended up on the show. Is it actually in New York where they No, it? no, it's in uh, uh, Los Angeles on like oh. the Sony backlot. Oh, wow. Uh, so I think I had to walk through the set for How I Met Your Mother to get to That's this cool. Shark Tank set. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. So they fly you out there. What's that experience like? Uh, I mean, it's it was weird. It's kind of like, you know, it's that. I think at the time, it probably still is. It's, it's a Mark Burnett production, so that's okay. the guy that did Survivor. So they know ah. what they're doing. Sure. And like, it's a very well-oiled machine. And this was the first season too, so like you'd expect some kind of like hiccups and stuff. But no, like, like every you know, they had clearly planned out you know what I was going to be doing, like where I was going to be. I never saw the sharks until it started taping uh-huh. like so I had no interaction with them I had I'd never seen them um, until I went onto the set to tape my segment right and they have you so there's a, a hallway that people walk down at least there was in the first season. I haven't watched you know in the last 10 years so I don't know what it looks like now but you had to walk down this hallway and then um, then you would start your pitch and that's how it looks on TV but in real life it's a forced perspective hallway so it's like actually really short and you have to walk like kind of slow and it's like got those like you know forced perspective like fake like huge walls and stuff and um that's That's hilarious and uh they have like you know it's a guy with a steady cam like three feet from your face and like another guy who's like frantically (laughs) grabbing the cables and like rolling them up behind him and you have to act like they're not there and then you walk up to your mark uh where you're supposed to stand to you know do your thing and then you have to stand there for two minutes while they get b-roll um so they're like there's like jibs like flying around like getting you know rat like wow. face shots and stuff to like fill in for later and you haven't said a word to the sharks really? at this point right so you're just staring at them like waiting for them to tell you to go for like two minutes while all these cameras are whirring around that's funny so yeah it's like surreal um it was it was definitely weird i mean but at the same time it was like you know that's why they do all that to keep it as genuine as possible like my first time i'd ever said a word to them was like right when the camera started taping and like uh from what i remember they cut almost nothing from my segment like i think pretty much everything i said ended up airing uh you know so like they you know they know how to produce reality tv for sure it was Mm. it was being part of a very well-oiled machine was it nerve-wracking oh yeah of course (laughs) (laughs) who were like who are the people you had a pitch to uh, so, well, I mean, the first season cast was, uh, what was his name, Kevin something or other? I, the, the, oh, the, I think oh, they got rid of him later. Um, and then Barbara Corcoran, um, 
Kevin, the Canadian guy with the bald guy, yeah. and then Robert Herjavec and Damon John. Um, yeah. And, no uh, cubes. No, Cuban was the second season, I think. Uh, or at least maybe the third. I don't know. But yeah, I didn't have him. That's, you're our first TV celebrity. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a special moment. <laughs> so, so that's what led you to success. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. So you're off, you're off Shark Tank. You, you yeah. go to school, you are in programming now. So what were some of like your earlier programming jobs? Um, so my first job was basically my first couple of jobs were at various startups or um, people in New York that I knew um, you know I think so I think especially when I was in college like I thought networking was like going to meetups and handing out your business card but what I realized very quickly was that networking is just being nice to people and they will feel like they want to pay you back for that. Like part of the reason why I'm here today is because Jason's a super nice guy <laughs> and like, I want to pay him back for all the, you know, all the, you being a good guy. <laughs> I appreciate that. And, uh, <laughs> and so my first job, like I, I pair program with this guy, um, at a, a coworking space for like two or three hours. His name's, uh, Trace, um, super nice guy. And, uh, I pray program him for like two or three hours and like, he then, you know, thought I was a, a nice guy and sent my name off to someone when someone asked him, like, hey, I, I need a I need a junior programmer. You got anybody? And he's like, yeah, I just talked to this guy. You should you should talk to him. That was my first job, right? Like someone was I was nice to someone. They were nice to me. Um, and so, yeah, I worked at tech startups that way. Um, and then I uh, worked like kind of like with contract for a friend's startup. And then I got a job at a. Uh, 500 startups company it was called craft coffee it was like a coffee box subscription okay and i worked there for two years um it was a lot of programming but like it's a five person startup basically so you end up doing everything like i took over from the operations person when they quit so like <laughs> i was in charge of like shipping you know 800 coffee boxes a month wow. um out of the out of this like brooklyn space <laughs> um it was really fun like i ended up you know uh, reading a lot about um, lean production, like the Toyota production system, and like redoing our whole assembly line, and and trying to like you know reduce the amount of work it took to to assemble a box and, and send it out the door. It was like super fun because you it's kind of like programming. It's like it's system design. Sure. Um, so uh, that was fun. Um, and then after that, I've been freelance ever since that job. So that was like four or five years ago, um, and I started doing freelance and just loved it. So that's what I've been doing ever since. Was it the freelance stuff that led you into the performance? Yeah, focus? so, well, kind of. Um, actually, like, at that last job, it's an e-commerce company, so I started getting an interest in performance because I had read a lot about how um, the link between site speed and, and, and revenue in e-commerce companies. You know, like, no one's going to uh, wake up 20 years from now and wish their website was slower. And, <laughs> like, so what putting money into or putting time into performance work was, like, it just seemed like this obviously good thing for me to be doing, especially on like the checkout and all that, you know, the, the revenue important parts of the site. So that was how I got into performance really was doing that at this company. Then I started writing about it and that took like a year or two after I quit. I think I don't, I don't remember, but, um, and then I, when I started writing about it, then like, uh, I, you know, I was like doing some hot takes, especially about Turbolinks, um, <laughs> yeah. about how I thought it was good. 
and uh, DHH like retweeted one of my articles and it like blew up and I got all this readership and I was like, hmm, I should keep writing about this performance stuff. And then it was like just the uptake from writing about performance stuff at that at that time, which is what that was like the feedback like, oh, this is a market need. Like people need some feedback and need some advice here. And that was how I got started on the performance road. That's cool. So you still freelance or I know you do workshops and stuff. Yeah, no, I'm a hundred I've been a hundred percent freelance for yeah, last four or five years. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you got started performance, you, you mentioned one of the first articles was like about turbo links. Mm -hmm. Were you just focused on like performance as a whole or did you kind of like dive into like maybe like server side, front end? I mean, I've always been like a, 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 a full stack performance advocate. Sure. Um, I say that there are two things you can do with performance work and that is to improve the customer experience, to improve perceived performance of the website. Like this website feels fast or it feels slow or you can decrease server costs by decreasing latency. So if I can reduce your site's latency by 50%, then most of the time I can reduce your server cost by 50%. So that's the only really two things you can do with PerfWork. And that first one, which is what people think PerfWork is mostly about, improving the customer experience, actually it turns out most of the, the, the customer's experience of whether a website is fast or slow is governed by what happens on the front end. You know, you're, you're, Rails applications, um, response latency is 100 to 250 milliseconds, but the average experience of loading a web page is five to seven seconds. Right. So the, you know, you could have the uh, uh, response time of your of your Rails app and make a two percent dent in the you know perceived performance of of your of your site. So, um, and this also like I think it's partially due to the the, the time that I got into programming was like when full stack was a bit more of a thing. Um, so that's always been my perspective is like, I have responsibility from the back all the way to when the customer starts using the website, right? So um, yeah, so I do, a, I, I go all over. Um, I obviously only talk about Ruby and Rails on the back end, but um, I talk about front end um, quite a lot as well because it, it matters quite a lot. So, if we can maybe get some hot takes hot for takes. a second. Uh, so, follow you on Twitter, talk a lot about, you know, uh, how Ruby is still relevant and Rails is fast enough, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how is your perception of this, like, we're splitting out the back and front end movement? Yeah, um, I'm fine with that. Like, uh, I've worked, I mean, I have a lot of client apps now that, that do that. Um, I think... You know, the, the what are the issues with um, JavaScript heavy front ends? You know, one of the things that really bothers me is it seems like a lot of, especially the really the more mature ones, the ones that have been around for a long time, like the the, the legacy uh, JavaScript front end apps, the mobile performance is just garbage. Like it's hot, flaming garbage, and like so many of these places literally just say, yeah. We, you can't use our site on mobile. Like, just, you know, go use an app. <laughs> like, that's sad to me. Like, I, I, I don't believe in the App Store ecosystem in the long term. I think that the web is beautiful and amazing, and I wish that more mobile websites were not trash fires, and I wish they were nice and good to use. But, um, you know, so that kind of makes me sad that, like, 
the, the new front end paradigm is just to, you know, to mobile web too bad. Like that kind of sucks in my opinion. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's fine. Um, I, I think, I think the whole like Basecamp golden path package of like, let's not do that much JavaScript. Let's, you know, triple links the front end. And it, it, it just allows a development team to focus a lot more on just being competent in one rails tech stack. Right. And like mostly to mostly write Ruby and to write only a small amount of JavaScript. I think that's valuable. And I think that's, you know, especially valuable at companies that are under, you know, 20 engineers, which is what most of them are. Right. So I think, I just don't think we should be so eager to throw that stuff out the window. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would agree with that. I, there's a, there's like a part of me as a programmer that like, gets really excited about like the react, uh, and stuff like yeah. that, but it's not super applicable to what I do day to day. So it's, it's like an internal struggle. And I, I think you also just have to remember, like, you know, because I really loved um, DHH's, like, slide in his uh, initial talk, his, his keynote. It was, like, uh, he had that SpongeBob meme and it's, like, but does it scale? Like, I get, <laughs> I get that a lot, you know, like, but does it scale? And, uh, you know, the truth is, like, the Rails golden path absolutely scales. Like, you look at Shopify, GitHub, Basecamp, CookPad, uh, all of these sites use a full stack Rails app, which does Turbolinks. Right. <laughs> like mm -hmm. three of the four I just named use Turbolinks explicitly. Uh, GitHub uses PJAX, which is basically Turbolinks. Sure. Yeah. So like this approach scales in the most, <laughs> you know, huge way possible, right? Like if it works at GitHub, it will work for you. So, um, you know, this... That approach, I just it just doesn't have the marketing that that React has, and it doesn't have, mm -hmm. you know, the the. It doesn't translate as well to Hacker News driven development, so it, it's too yeah. simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like, people don't want to use it because they know it's simple, and they're like, it's like a lot of beginners look for something hard because they want to do hard stuff, eventually, and then the further along you get, you want to do simpler stuff. It's pretty funny. And, you know, the, the endorsement of these, like, top ten in the world <laughs> sites, I think, really does go a long way. Even even though GitHub is, you know, top 50 or something now, like, just the Facebook and the Google and the Apple or whatever, you know, whatever they say to do, yeah. people just seem to flock to that. Which I understand to some extent, because I, I understand, especially when you're a beginner, it's a lot about job prospects. And, you know, you think sure. that, okay, if it's approved by Facebook, I can learn it and get a job using it, right? Right. So yeah. I, I understand that. Hmm. So this this might be a tough one to answer, but as someone who I assume has worked on many apps in terms of performance, yep. like helping people yep. improve their speed, are there any like certain things you can pinpoint that are like common mistakes people make in terms of performance? Um, prob probably mistake numero uno is just overuse of Active Record. Like the Active Record makes it super easy to to fire off a query and it just makes it too easy. <laughs> um, I call this code that goes bump in the night. Like I think most people just don't actually understand what their app is doing. Um, when a request goes off, like they don't understand the code path. Like where it starts here like we, okay, what's a rack middleware. And then like what's happening in these rack middleware. And then, okay, it goes into the app. Uh, what, what happens in the routing layer? What happens here? And like no one 
people don't normally have to go through that execution path. Like they don't have to understand the steps involved. And so it ends up being like what happens a lot when I bring people in and, and you know show them how to profile and benchmark. Like we open up a profile for the first time and it's like, what is all this code? Like what is all this doing? Right. You know, that's that and uh, Richard's talk, which I can also recommend um, from yesterday here at RailsConf, Richard Schneeman, um, he had like a little metric that he brought up for removing or uh, yeah, removing code for performance reasons, which was like, is it necessary? Uh, is it clean? Is it performant? And uh, is it useful? I don't remember the fourth one. Sure. But anyway, like you can't remove or, or optimize something that you don't understand. And uh, I think if that's the, mis I guess my mis the, the mistake then is like not actually understanding what goes on from a code path perspective when uh, a request comes in in the Rails app. Um, profiling is the easiest way to get, to, to figure that out, to like get deeper down that path. Um, because a profile will literally show you like, okay, you spent this amount of time on this line, this amount of time on this line, and so on and so forth. but. Um, like when I show people that for the first time, I think it's kind of overwhelming because they've never had to think about their Rails app at that level before. But you have to think that way because you have to understand it and know it before we can start optimizing it, right? Do you think that's a uh, thing that maybe, how do I word this? Maybe we don't teach basics enough in that? I or? don't know. I mean, like, I think that's just the natural progression, right? Like the first thing you gotta, what is it saying? Like first make it work then make it uh, clean, then make it fast. Sure. Yeah. So like, yeah. that's the progression, that's fine. I think that's natural way, you know, because also like getting to work is the thing that pays the bills, right? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, what, I guess what good is speed if you have nobody using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, you know, I, and premature optimization and all that, so um, I'm fine with that progression, right? I think, actually, I'm actually kind of against like trying to teach uh, a basics first approach to programming, like, uh, especially for me, what got me motivated was uh, seeing something come to life for the first yeah. time. You know, something like you can use, and that's what the Rails yeah. tutorial does. Like it doesn't, you know, it teaches you how to use Git, but it's not going to teach you what a tree and a or a blob <laughs> is, right? right. Like, yeah. you know, all it taught you was enough to get you to making your own Twitter, and like that was like, oh wow, I made my own Twitter. Like that was the aha moment for me, and so. I don't. I don't think we should be teaching people basics first because I think it, if it, it just can get you bogged down in the way of getting to that point of the aha. Yeah. No. That's actually like what got me in programming. So like I was doing front end work, uh, HTML, CSS, jQuery, not JavaScript. Uh, <laughs> didn't know how to use JavaScript, uh, and like I was tired of not being able to like work with data. Right. I was like, I build these like front ends and then. I'm the only one that can do anything with them. Mm. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to learn some PHP. And like I sat down to do it, and like I didn't even know what a framework was. And I was just going through Jeffrey Way's like PHP tutorial, and I was like, this is so much work. Uh, and so like I was Googling and Googling, and that's what led me to Rails. And like, you know, like there were PHP frameworks, I just didn't know about them. Uh, but like, I spent two weeks trying to learn like how to like make database calls and PHP. And I was like, well, this doesn't feel like it belongs here, but I don't know. Like, <laughs> and then you pick up Rails and like within two weeks I had built like a full application with like database, association, yeah. stuff like this. I'm like, yeah. I'm a freaking like superhero right now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah there, there's definitely something to be said for that. 
So, uh, you launched a product how many years ago now? I think three. Three? Yeah. The Complete Guide to Rails Performance. It is an ebook, video series, uh, interviews. Yep. Is that all, all correct? Yep. Slack channel, anything I'm missing there? Uh, I think that's it. Okay. <laughs> I, remember, I remember one of the first videos uh, that I saw you were interviewing, actually, you were talking with DHH. Yep. I remember there's something that like sticks with me and all my friends in the Ruby community still talk about is when DHH said, well, if you're doing Russian doll caching, N plus one uh, is actually a feature. Yeah. And I remember how mind-boggling that was, yeah. like, all these yeah. years later. Uh, it, I don't know. It, it was like those interviews led me to be like, I need to buy this course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, the, I remember that super clearly. The intentional yeah. N plus one was probably something that deserved more of a follow-up than I ever actually gave it. Um, but you might want to explain it to anybody so, that doesn't Okay, know. so um, let's say you have uh, a app with an inbox full of messages, right? And uh, so you have like 10 of them in a list. And the traditional approach to, to do that um, would be like, you know, at messages equals message, user.messages.first10, okay? In a world where you are... Uh, Russian doll caching that list. That means that every row in that inbox, every every message is a is fragment cached. Um, so, if every row is fragment cached, then uh, if you are loading all the messages in the controller or, to, or in 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 the view, then there's you're kind of you're doing extra work because you didn't have to load them because they're already cached and rendered and ready to go. Um, so the way that Basecamp does it is to uh, write the code in such a way that the rows themselves have the job of looking up one message, and so that means that when you are fully cached out, um, there's no SQL. Uh, you just do the lookup for uh, the fragment cache. Um, so, but it also means that when a new uh, inbox or new message comes in, you will look up the one message, the one new one, and then re render it and then cache it. Um, so, if the cache is completely cold, then you have an N plus one and you look up a message uh, for every row. Right. It seems like a. It seems like that initial load is a small price to pay in the grand scheme of things for a fully hot cache. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, how how's it been like releasing a product that's like you've built a community around it? Hmm. You um, didn't take it to Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Uh, what's that experience been like? Well, it's been great. I mean, um, it's cool. Like, I mean, I, it's, it was always my approach in the beginning, but it's I guess just been ever more validated day to day. It's like you have to build. Think of myself as building an audience and not building products. Uh, I have an email list. I have, you know, now a customer list of people that have bought the course. But, like, I think of myself as working for Rails developers. Mm. And it happens to be that, you know, I work for them for performance-related stuff. Um, but I start with the audience and then, you know, build the product um, to, to suit that audience. Um, and you, I guess, you know, you're right about performance. You kind of built an audience that way, like helping, like mm -hmm. having DHH 
tweet your articles probably helps a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it helped in the first one, but you know, he didn't retweet the other oh, sure, sure. two or three dozen that I had to write, <laughs> you know, to prepare for the course to come out. So yeah. it was that was more just like a, a a hint of like, oh, you're on the right track. Here. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. so there's there's some pickup here. Yeah. There's there's some there's some there's something here. And then recently you have shifted into doing more workshops. Yeah. Yeah, so this summer I'm doing 15 of them, actually. That's so awesome. Wow. Yeah. You're actually doing one tomorrow, right? I am doing one tomorrow, yes. Did that one sell out? or? Uh, no, no, no. Um, I don't, like, I don't price them so that they're going to sell out. You know, like, I try to keep them as small as possible. That makes um, sense, yeah. And uh, because part of what I like to do is bring people in and uh, have them uh, bring their actual Rails app that they work on every day. And... I actually will look over their shoulder and help them to figure out, you know, when these we put these performance tools onto their actual apps, like to help them understand the output. Because one of the really difficult things, which I was sort of talking about earlier, is like this is probably the first time a lot of people coming in my workshop have ever followed the code path of a Rails app from, you know, line one to line a million at the end of the request. So helping them to understand, like, okay, so this part here is coming into the uh, rack middleware. And then this this is the Rails router. Here's here's the code that it calls. And then here's the action controller stack and all the methods that it calls. So, okay, now here's your actual app. And helping them to understand the output on their real application and not some like fake one or simple one that then when they go home, they're like, they you know open up the pro- their profile on their actual app for the first time. Like they're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> yeah. So that's why I keep them small intentionally for, for that reason. That sounds awesome. I am trying to work on coming to one in Chicago. I don't know if it's going to work. Oh, yeah? I'm really interested in it. We, uh, uh, in my day job, like, we've, we've grown quite a bit, and, like, performance hasn't necessarily been, like, a real big issue, but it's become a bottleneck in certain areas. Like, it's the first time I've actually personally had to implement caching mm. and application, things like that. And mm. I think there's so much more I could learn. Uh, you know, like, I bought the course... And like when I went through it, I, I don't know if I finished the ebook, but like when I started it, like I wasn't dealing with those problems. Oh, okay. And so, like, because the, the majority of the apps I worked on were like internal uh-huh. software systems uh-huh. that like were used by like 100 people. Uh-huh. So, like, yeah, they were like performance was a little bit of an issue, but we could also just throw more dinos at it. And yeah. Like, and especially on the measurement and diagnosis side, like, it's one thing to throw some of these tools on, like, an internal app that maybe has a couple of contributors and, and maybe a year or two of history, and then another to throw it on the big, bad monolith that has been around for five years and, you know, serving lots of traffic and, right. and features and customers and stuff. You know, there's a, a different level of complexity and skill required um, to, to do that. It, it, it's nice though because you know one of you hinted at it earlier. Like one of the common complaints or criticisms of Ruby and subsequently Rails is like it doesn't scale. It's too slow. Uh, of course, Ruby's dead. Rails is dead. And like, not only is like your stuff valuable in that it teaches people to like make their applications faster. It's also like social proof alongside these other top 100 apps that like you know like this is. This is not a problem. Like, you just, you have to be a little bit knowledgeable about it. Yeah. Like, yep. and it, it goes back a little bit to what Justin was just talking about in the last episode where he was like, it's actually nice that a lot of the people who are just here because of the hype mm. have left. Mm. And we just have to reinvent and say, like, it's actually really good to be stable. But it's also like, this is a piece of that where it's like, 
as a reminder, like, it's not actually slow, you know, or it's pl plenty good enough. Yeah, know? I think we just have to work and, at it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and it's, like, really good marketing in a sense for Rails and everything and Ruby just being like, look, guys, like, but here's, here's, here's a, a solution, here's the yeah, path, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think it contributes a ton to that. Yeah. You know? So it's been awesome. Were you at uh, Ruby Kagi last week? I was. How was that? Oh my God, it was amazing. <laughs> I love Kagi. Yeah, everyone listening to this should go. Um, it was incredible. Uh, it was huge this year. It was like something like a 50% increase, I was told, of the attendance over wow. last year. Wow. Um, so it was in Fukuoka, Japan. And Fukuoka is some kind of like tech, uh, I don't know how I want to phrase this. Like the government is trying to push tech in Fukuoka. So like, I think if you like get an entrepreneur visa in Japan, like you have to go live in Fukuoka. Oh wow! Really? Like that kind of thing. And like, wow. the governor of Fukuoka gave like an opening uh, remark in, wow. in English and was like very technical and like talked about why Ruby is so good for startups and wow. stuff. It was like really, really impressive. <laughs> That's incredible. They shut down a whole city street, actually three city streets, for the after party. No um, yeah. So it, like Ruby's like. Wow. A first-class yeah. citizen there. <laughs> yes, very much. So that was pretty crazy. Um, and the so the if you've never been to a Kaigi, the, um, it's kind of targeted at Ruby committers or people who would like to work on Ruby. So all the talks are Ruby. They're also all pretty technical and pretty um, low-level. Um, and so I like that. It's, it's very challenging. I, I learn a lot. I feel like this year at Kaigi, like, there was a lot of stuff being announced for the first time and mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, stuff being um, debuted. So, like, the Sorbet project got a great talk. Um, they, Matt's talked a little bit about the uh, static type system that's going to be coming to Ruby 3. Um, and so it's it just felt super cutting edge. And um, I absolutely loved it. I love Japan. I love uh, going to Kaigi. So what are some of your kind of initial takes and thoughts on Ruby, I guess, three progress? And mm. So I think what's like Ruby three by three was the promise that Ruby three will be three times faster than Ruby two. And that looks like it's almost definitely going to happen at this point. Um, but that's only an artifact of the way that they measure um, Ruby three by three. So they measure it based on this benchmark called OptCaret which is a Nintendo emulator. Um, it's extremely CPU heavy. So it's like, if you've ever like looked at an emulator source code, like it's just like moving bits around. There's really no memory pressure at all. Uh, there's not a lot of objects being created. It's just like very CPU intensive. So that benchmark is almost definitely gonna be three times faster. So Ruby three by three is officially going to happen, but um, you know, Rails apps are not gonna be three times faster on Ruby three than they were on Ruby two. Um, Noah Gibbs has been doing a lot more work on this than me is to figure out exactly what the impact is. I think they're probably going to be about two times faster on, on Ruby 3. I'll take it. Which is, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm not going to say no to that either. <laughs> um, so that's exciting. Um, the stuff that's happening on the JIT side is really impressive. So Takashi uh, Kokubun gave a talk here, which is the same talk he gave in Kai at Kaigi, but in Kaigi gave it in Japanese, um, on his work on the 2.6 JIT. Um, you know, now the 2.7 JIT. Um, and that's a pretty exciting project. Like right now we're really at the stage where he's just kind of laid the groundwork down. And now I think we're gonna get into the stage of being able to like, you know, get the payoff from some of that groundwork. Um, Rails is kind of like one of the most difficult <laughs> applications for a JIT because it's so <laughs> it's so huge or so the method surface is enormous. Right. Um, so 
that is kind of going to be a tough test. I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to see the benefits from legit before Ruby 3. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, static types or type checking, I should say. It's going to be a thing. So that's official. It's committed. It's going to happen. I have no idea. You know, like, it seemed like some of the stuff that was presented at Kegi was sort of, like, very experimental. Like, it, they just sort of decided on an approach. Um, basically, it involves these um, files called RBI, I believe, RBI files, that the intention is that the runtime will generate these files. And they're basically, like, they analyze the runtime and they say, okay, this class uh, and this method usually only gets fed an integer, so we're going to say it takes type integer, and then it generates this RBI file that says that information. So it's sort of like automatic type annotation. <laughs> then the intention is that you will go into these RBI files and add, modify, um, whatever you think it needs. Um, but for the most part, they think that for applications, they should be auto-generated. Oh, wow. Um, so that's the approach that they're taking. Um, and it seems all very new, but it did have a working demo. So, you know, it's that's there. So hopefully that'll be done for Ruby 3. So if you write, uh, like, a, your own class, can you write your own RBI file? Yes, it, yes. And then you can actually annotate, yes. like, your inputs yep. and outputs. Yep. Cool. Yep. Have you looked into Truffle Ruby at all? Yeah, so Chris um, Seaton, the Truffle Ruby project lead, is an active member of my um, Slack community, and um, it's an awesome project. I actually just popped it open the other day. I don't remember. I think it was, like, trying to get a benchmark or something, but... I just noticed like it runs Psychic out of the box with uh, no issues right now. Wow. So that's, that's a big fantastic. that's a big step. I think, uh, you know, with the rail support, it's always like a thing. Like I think they're at like you know, ninety nine percent done on that. But it's always the last one percent that right. stops you from running an app, right? Like, uh, you know, I think they have the same kind of stumbling blocks that like JRuby has in that front. Although they get they can actually run C extensions, which is the the sort of um, secret sauce for, for Rails adoption there. Um, but it's a super cool project. You know, I think a lot of people are nervous about what the fact that it's Oracle-backed. Um, you know, like, someone could come into their office any day and, like, be like, yes, this project's over now. Like, you're, you can go home. And that's, you know, that's Oracle has done that kind of thing in the past, right? Like, that could happen. Um, you know, and so... Your own uh, Oracle opinions may color what you think about um, Truffle Ruby. I think, you know, there is, but I, th I also think there is, like, a very green grass at the end of this, possibly, right? Yeah. Where there's, like, there's, like, a Truffle Ruby Enterprise Edition that's, you know, like, a paid interpreter that is, like, yeah. five times faster yeah. than regular Ruby like, that you run in production, it, right? Yeah. And we can call it tree. Yeah. <laughs> We've made yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so and a long time ago, there was that Ruby Enterprise Edition. Like, yeah, back yeah, back. from Hong Lee. Yeah. Um, and yeah. uh, that was a very popular thing. So, yeah. um, huh. you know, it could it could work. It could happen. So th I, from what I understand, there's always going to be a community edition, which is free. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they haven't announced or talked about any plans for, for anything else, but you can assume there will be. Um, uh, like, do you mostly see people using MRI or? Uh, yeah, I've had a small handful of people using JRuby. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not the person to really ask about JRuby. I think I specialize more in CRuby. Um, but uh, like that JRuby client, I think was really using it because they had, had a JVM app before, and they kind of migrated from Java to Ruby, and they they saw JRuby as like an easier way to aid that transition. Yeah. 
So, Makes you know, sense. JRuby is not only about performance, right? Like, it's also about that JVM interoperability uh -huh. and Java interoperability. So, I think that's pr a pretty strong use case for a lot of people. Yeah, I was just curious, like, if anyone was using it just purely, you know, for performance or whatever. I, I don't know of anyone personally that's come to me for that reason. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Uh, any, any links or things you want to plug? Um, so my, uh, so the site for my consultancy is uh, speedshop.co.co. Um, and uh, all of my performance stuff is on there. Um, so workshops are happening this summer. Um, first one is this weekend, but um, really they start in June. Um, it's starting in New York City. I'm going to New York City, Atlanta, Chicago, Denver, uh, pretty much everywhere. <laughs> so if you live in a somewhat major hub city, I'm probably close to you. Um, so go check that out. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, talk soon. Thanks, man.